Greetings, whale huggers, water lovers, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Laren Young, director of The Hundred-Year-Old Whale, and today I'm talking to one of the stars of that movie, author and historian Jason Colby. When I started diving into the history of the human relationship with killer whales, I quickly discovered I wasn't the only one writing a book about the early days when we went from fearing orcas to loving them to death. Jason Colby was working on his own book, Orcas, How We Came to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator. And even though he was a historian, he had his own connection to this story. His dad was one of the original orca wranglers. When we launched the Scanna podcast, I always knew Jason had to be on the show, and we finally talked to him in a room surrounded by the skeletons of orcas and other creatures. We met in the skeleton storage room at the Royal BC Museum, and I held a narwhal tusk. Seriously, so cool. As always, this podcast is brought to you by our heroic podmates who sponsor us through Patreon.com, including Susie Venuta, Nancy Campbell, Chantel Shawnee Surrett, Eagle Wing, and Yosef Wask. And if you've been thinking of sponsoring us, this is the time to do it. In the next few days, we're going to be revamping our Patreon tiers and benefits and launching a special Earth Day offer for new subscribers who would like sneak previews of our upcoming documentary about Moby Doll or an autographed copy of my upcoming book, Orcas Everywhere. Maybe we'll even give you a sneak peek from our upcoming Earth Day special episode, our exclusive interview with the best-selling author of The Hidden Life of Trees and The Inner Life of Animals, Peter Voliban. Since everyone knows podcasting and documentaries are all about the big bucks, just wanted to let you know the money we get helps us pay for web hosting, hard drives, and the awesome students and volunteers who make these podcasts possible. So please check us out at patreon.com. And now, here's Jason Colby on the history and future of our relationship with the Southern Resident Orcas. When did you decide to write this book? That's a great question, actually. I, uh, I decided to write this book. Um, I, I just finished my first book. I was... Uh, trying to decide on my next project. Um, and I was walking with my, uh, with my wife and my, my two little sons, um, down, uh, Oak Bay Avenue and down to where Sealand of the Pacific used to be on Oak Bay Marina and walked by that Kilowale statue there. And I was reflecting on, um, on, my family's connection to that place and the fact that my dad had, had worked for Sealand and had captured killer whales. And I think it had always been bouncing around in the back of my head. You know, this is 2010, 2011, this happened. It had always been bouncing around in the back of my head that I wanted to turn back to this story that my family had lived with and that I'd grown up with, um, and to make sense of it and to put it in its context in the region. And it was literally that day we were walking around Oak Bay Marina. I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I think I'm gonna write my next book about, killer whales and, and people. And, and she sort of was taken aback by this. It's really different than anything I'd done before. And, and I said, you know, I, I think in some ways it's the book I'm meant to write and I need to write. And, and uh, that was the moment. Because it's personal, 
and you're coming from an academic background, was there a challenge in saying, hi, I'm going to tell my own story in here, like just dealing with an academic press? and Absolutely. There were, there were lots of questions that came up. I mean, first of all, many of my friends who knew my work, which had been focused more on sort of U.S., Latin American relations and corporate empire and things like that, literally asked me if I was high um, when awesome. I said when I said I wanted to do the next one on on orcas. You know, one of my friends said, "Well, as a what is a fun puff piece? This isn't going to be. Uh, you can't really write an academic book about whales, right?" Hey there, champ. A friend told me you got a little too high. I'm sorry, pal. This sucks. You may feel like you've gone permanently insane or like you're dead. Here's the good news. You're alive and your sanity is probably intact. You're just really, really high. Um, which was kind of funny because to me, that was the whole compulsion for, not the whole compulsion, but a big part of writing it is that I wanted to, I wanted to explore this personal and family connection with the bigger regional story. And so, yes, it was a, it was a challenge sometimes pitching it um, to some of the academic presses, and I and I actually initially went a after the, the the big commercial presses, um, but I eventually settled on um, on Oxford, partly because I actually wanted uh, uh, you know to be able to to tell this personal story with a with an academic press and prove that you could do this, right? Prove that you could tell a, an engaging, to some degree, journalistic story, at least a bit of the personal. Uh, and still do a serious piece of history. It's not an academic book. It's <laughs> like it's way too much fun as a read to be an academic book. That's uh, that's uh, that's nice to hear. Thank you. Um, that's I mean that's what I went after. I wanted I wanted um, this to be uh, more uh, an academic book um, masquerading as a as a great beach read in the sense that. You know, it does have crazy things that happen. Can I can I swear on this podcast? Yes, absolutely. So David my, Suzuki my joke, did, yeah, so you so can. So my joke I had to many friends is, you know, I, I thought about titling this book, you know, crazy shit that really happened. And, and because, you know, some of it's really unbelievable. And, and, and some of the stories people told me were just crazy. Um, it's, it's, it was, it was, you know, gut-wrenching and exciting and exhausting to write. I think it's pretty exciting and and heartbreaking sometimes to read, but I think it, it, it's academic in the sense that it is really drawing upon a lot of historical literature, you know, primary sources. I'm doing the things historians do in their serious pieces of academic work, um, but I'm in some ways sort of hiding that stuff in the background and really telling a, a crazy story. And so, and so people are engaging in a, in this in, in some academic questions here without really knowing it I think and, and I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to make the, make a lot of these questions really fun to think about um, precisely because they are part of this this crazy story can you talk about your dad's part in this crazy story yeah I mean my my uh, my dad entered the picture in the 1970s um, grew up in, in Puget Sound actually as a kid had gone to see uh, the first whale displayed in Puget Sound uh, uh, Namu on the on the Seattle waterfront he had you know as an 18 19 year old uh, gone to watch Ted Griffin um, swim with Namu this this famous whale uh, not too far from his home this made a really powerful impression on him he went out into university studied marine biology and I think bouncing around in his head was the possibility of going into this kind of 
field, right? So by 70, 71, he's, he's thinking about this. 72, uh, he actually witnesses, when he's 24, 25 years old, uh, he witnesses the last capture that Ted Griffin uh, conducted in Puget Sound. It's in, in, it's in um, March of 72. And my dad had actually, at that moment, been hired by Bob Wright of the Sealand of the Pacific in Victoria as the new curator, but he hadn't started yet. And he literally perched himself in a tree uh, and for days and meticulously documented this capture in front of him at the time, you know, ambitiously thinking, I'm going to apply this when I, when I go work for Sealand. Uh, he went on to become curator at Sealand, uh, you know, uh, Oak Bay Marina, right off of, right close to Victoria and, um, uh, engaged in several attempts to capture, uh, orcas in Harrow Strait, you know, not near, near San Juan Island. Uh, and eventually, uh, was the lead captor of an operation, actually two successful cap- capture operations that, that occurred in Petter Bay in August, 1973. Um, captured four, what we now know are Southern resident orcas in, in K and L pod, uh, three of which were kept, one of which was turned over to Michael Big. Uh, uh, now a very famous researcher that my dad knew really well um, for a really important experiment, actually, that he conducted about uh, not just radio telemetry, but but actually marking the whale for tracking. Um, one of the things I reveal in the book that I can reveal to you here, we're all friends, right, yes, is that, is that uh, it, you know, my dad lived with, has lived with a lot of the guilt um, associated with those captures. Now, I mean, all three of those whales that were kept died within a year um, in various places that they've been taken. This led to a falling out um, for him at Sealand where he le- when he left. And um, the piece of it that he didn't tell me until much later when I was interviewing him, and this is, you know, I'd heard this story when I was eight. I heard, heard about the captures when I was eight and nine and ten. And, but it wasn't until my, what, you know, 30 years later that when I'm interviewing him that he tells me the story that, that, you know, it could have been a lot more whales. And I, and I said, what? And he said, oh, yeah, the second time they came through, uh, there, we were, there were about 20 in, in Petter Bay, and I was about to set the net across. And there was an explosion from the Army Depot right next to us, and, and almost the entire pod jetted out of Petter Bay. And he said, you know, at the time I was really upset. This was a big capture. I was going to feel like a big macho success in this capture. And in hindsight, this is probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me, you know, because he, he, he found it brutal living with the deaths of these three whales that he caught. And it could have been 10, 15 more. Uh, it could have been disastrous for that pod. And so, uh, you know, that piece of the story I, I deal with a lot in the book, actually, is a lot of these contingencies of, you know, things that happened that could have gone very differently. Um, oh, it yeah. could have been even more disastrous to the Southern residents. And I don't mean to downplay how damaging the live captures were to the Southern residents, but there's a lot of things that happened that could have been much worse. Cancer's only in my liver, lungs, prostate, and brain. All things I can live without. Oh, there was a piece in, in your book that floored me that Ted Griffin had captured a superpod and they had what sounded like pretty much all the orcas. And he made the decision to let some go, not knowing... The amazing part of that was not knowing they were endangered. Like that was that was still in the era where they believed there were thousands of them. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting when we're thinking about this era of live capture that it's not until 1971 that there's any regulation or limitations in Washington State at all 
And so that big capture that happens in 1970, August 1970, involves between 80 and 90 whales, almost the entire southern resident population, we now know. There were a couple of stragglers, um, but he did make the decision at the time in, in intention with the fishermen that were working with him and his partner, Don Goldsberry, uh, actually demanded that half of those whales be released, 40 or 50 of them. And then uh, the majority of those that were in the nets were released after he selected some for captivity. Now, we now know that was, that was still disastrous for the Southern residents. I mean, you're removing a generation. Yeah. And, and that's the same capture where the nets were cut uh, by activists and, and several calves drowned. Um, another real tragedy from that capture. Uh, but on the other hand, had he sold all the whales that were in demand... Uh, the southern resident population could have been virtually eliminated, and that was 48 years ago. In one capture. One capture. One in one, you know, week. And this was Pen Cove, just for anybody who's listening to this and this Pen knows Pen, Pen Cove, but doesn't, yeah. This is the Pen Cove, and a lot of people think that the Pen Cove, there was the one Pen Cove capture. There was actually four Pen Cove captures. There was, but there's the but one there's infamous the one, one which is kind gigantic. of Orca Altamont. Like, to me, it's like, <laughs> that's what I keep thinking of with Pen Cove. It's like, this is the day that the 60s died. This is the day that live capture died was sinking those three whales certainly the day that live capture died in the northwest yes i mean it, i mean it continues oh yeah that's it, what i mean yeah it continues on i mean it's last it's last sort of hurrah or last horror is is 1976 right out outside of of olympia washington but this is the moment when the the I would say the critical mass of public opinion in the northwest turns against live capture of orcas yeah Gotta get off this rock, Chuck. Get back to the mainland. Whatever the hell's going on here, it's bad. Now, when your dad started feeling guilty, clearly not everybody did. So did he get into why he felt guilty about it? Because there there are still people out there, I'm sure people who've interviewed you just went, eh, it's a whale. Yeah, I mean, we all go through stages of this. And I think that um, as much as I, I try to be a, you know, a good historian, understand the complexities of people. That's what a humanist tries to do. I mean, you never really understand anyone else completely, or I don't even understand myself a lot of the time. So, 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 uh, trying to explain how people have experienced this at different stages, even my father is difficult. It's a challenge, but from his perspective initially, and I think this is probably fair for a lot of the people that were in that industry, the initial guilt came not so much from the overall sense of being against captivity. I mean, my dad didn't turn against orca captivity until seeing blackfish. Yeah. Um, but he he lived with the knowledge that his actions had cost the lives of those three animals. And and um, and he's, you know, like so many people in this industry, and, and Ted Griffin's one of them, as hard as this is for people to believe, really are animal lovers. You know, whether they whether we think about them as environmentalists in the way we would define it, I mean, really did care about animals, wanted to take care of them, wanted to have relationships with them. And so for my father, the real guilt came from those individual animals dying. I mean, and, and you know, the one, the really dramatic moment for him certainly was, you know, one of those was a you know, beautiful young uh, uh, Southern resident that was named Candy. And she was just, um, you know, probably an adolescent, right on the verge of becoming a, a sort of a 
potential, or, you know, capable of reproduction, you know, for, for the Southern resident population. She's taken out of that population, uh, her transportation to Niagara Falls. She goes to Marine land in Niagara Falls and, um, and she's not transported properly. And this is one of the things that caused my dad to leave Sealand was anger over this. She's not transported properly, insufficient ice, a box that was much too small for us. She arrives there, uh, with her part of her lung flooded, uh, uh, and is eventually struggling with, with pneumonia. And my dad, uh, spent, you know, uh, about four weeks in a, in a wetsuit in November in, in my Marineland of Niagara Falls outside in that pool, trying to nurse that, that whale candy back to health. And, uh, that's always stuck with him. I think this experience with this individual, whale, this beautiful, healthy, vibrant creature that he'd gotten to know while in this pool. And he watched her slowly die. And, and, and I think wrestled with that experience of being responsible for this individual whale dying. Now, it wasn't until I was finishing up this book that I came to the realization and relayed to him the realization that, that he was actually the man who captured the last Southern residents taken from the population, um, which was really hard to live with. Uh, uh, you know, this is, now remember, I tried to, to comfort him to some degree. Yeah. I tried to again, remind, nobody knew. Well, and I tried to remind him, you know, dad, Richard Nixon was still in office. That was just 45 years ago. Um, you know, but no nobody one, knew the Southern residents no existed one, at that. No one knew, no yeah. one knew they were called the Southern residents. No, you know, Michael Bake had just begun his, 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 he was on his third year of his killer whale census. He hadn't developed his, uh, you know, photographic ID. You know, no one knew these animals as individuals yet. And certainly no one knew that they were a coherent local population, um, that was already probably in free fall even before live capture from human violence and from falling fish runs. Um, Having said all that, and I try to wrestle with this in my favorite passage in the book, which is the last two pages, you know, try to wrestle with this meaning for my family and for the region. Um, it, it doesn't make it any easier to live with to some degree that, that you, you, you took the last of those live whales out. Now, those weren't the last ones, you know, who suffered damage because of human decisions, right? I mean, we're seeing that now. Um, but those were the last ones taken out because of life, life capture. And that was a stunning realization for me as I did the research. Wow. Uh, to give context, because I think for most listeners, if they've heard of Sealand, they've heard of it from Blackfish. So can you just give the capsule version of what was Sealand? Yeah, Sealand was a, was a small-time uh, oceanarium uh, that was founded in 1969 by an entrepreneur, uh, Bob Wright, um, one of the most important influential entrepreneurs in, in, in modern BC history, actually. Uh, and he, he founded it in 69, um, bought his first killer whale named Haida, uh, from Ted Griffin from Seattle, who, and Haida was a Southern resident. And Haida became, uh, really an iconic animal for the, for the developing Victoria tourist industry. I mean, he was displayed there from 69 to, to his death in 1982. Um, Sealand also became famous for its first capture in, 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 in March 1970, which netted a, an extraordinary, uh, white, they called it albino, uh, killer whale named Chima, who was on display there for, for two, two years 
two and a half years. And um, Sealand was was you know a famous tourist draw for Victoria, um, but also a really controversial uh, oceanarium by the end of it. I mean, it, it had conducted its own killer whale captures, which became you know hotly opposed, certainly by by the mid seventies by Greenpeace and other activists. Um, but Sealand went on to help uh, uh, pioneer, if you will, if that's the right word, um, and participate in other captures in Iceland as well, and 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 at times coordinated with uh, SeaWorld um, all the way up until 1989-1990 were the last captures that Bob Wright uh, uh, conducted through Sealand in 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 Iceland, uh, and then ultimately Sealand's probably most famous in in, in Blackfish for being the the place where uh, Tilikum uh, uh, first came as a captive whale and and uh, killed a Uvic student, University of Victoria student who was a trainer at Sealand. Uh, Sealand was closed. Those whales were sold to SeaWorld, and of course Tilikum went on to kill two others um, in at SeaWorld uh, before his death last year, I guess. Yeah. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust or greed. It's funny because when I, you know, growing up here, I remember thinking Sealand's pool, you know, and I'm growing up in the age when Scanna was a cool thing, when, you know, and I remember seeing Scanna and going, wow, this is really cool. And I remember going to Sealand and going, this is really small. Right. So even even as a little kid going, it's a really small place for a whale. My my memory of that place is of it being a super small pool. It was well it, it wasn't nearly as small as Scanna's original pool, right? So the the original BC Tell pool that, that, that she was in was was tiny. Oh yeah, that was why they weren't supposed yeah. to get a whale yet, because right. they knew they did not have a pool. I'd say I'd say the I mean the 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 pool, at, I mean, Sealand itself as a facility was a really small and kind of a rinky-dink operation in, in hindsight. Um, there were good things and bad things about its display, right? I mean, it was an open water display, so acoustically it was probably uh, uh, healthier for, for, uh, for an orca to be in, but it was also open to the pollution of, of you know... Oak Bay and, and Victoria. Um, so where we still dump our sewage in the water. Absolutely. Inexplicably. So, absolutely. So, I mean, there were, there were some, you could say there were some positive things about Sealand's initial approach. I mean, it, unlike, unlike the Vancouver Aquarium, it actually, it actually, um, attempt, they attempted some natural sort of display of some natural behaviors as opposed to just doing what we might call as tricks. And, and some of the early trainers there were actually went on to be pretty famous orca researchers like Graham Ellis. Um, but at the same time, it was a place that, you know, because it was undercapitalized and because it, it, it seemed to prioritize Bob Wright seemed to prioritize, you know, commercial interests over, over, husbandry even uh, let alone research um you know the animals certainly suffered from their their situation their condition there now let's go back to the orca your dad gave to mike big because that was one of the cooler stories in the book for me and and let's set up who michael big is again because otherwise i i can nerd out and Yeah, yeah yeah you know michael big uh is well known among orca enthusiasts, but not nearly as well known among 
cetacean researchers and among you know whale lovers around the world as he should be. He's one of the most important figures in in the transformation of modern whale science, modern cetacean science. Uh, he uh, was a, a I'll, I'll give you just the, the short version of it, but <laughs> he was a, a young graduate student in Vancouver, um, focusing you know mostly on pinnipeds on seals. He has the opportunity, as you've written about in your wonderful book about Moby Doll. Uh, uh, has the opportunity to to work a little bit with Moby Doll uh, as a as a graduate student and then participate in the necropsy. Uh, That's in '64, in the in the in the autumn of '64. Uh, goes on to finish his his graduate studies and right about the time that he's finishing up, or maybe even before he's done, he gets hired on um, at the Pacific Biological Station in in Nanaimo as their I would almost call it their token marine mammalogist because it was not a really important role considered at the time. Uh, and he gets the, what's considered sort of the unenviable task initially of, of conducting some sort of a population survey of orcas in the region, of orcas in BC, partly because of this rising um, concern about live capture and, and whether it was having some sort of impact on, on, on local orca populations. And he, with in consultation with Murray Newman, the, the director of the Vancouver Aquarium and others, decides on this idea of, of, a, of a killer whale census. And he coordinates this extraordinary effort uh, uh, in the U.S. and Canada, just from his little postage stamp office in Nanaimo, uh, for on a, on a period of, I think it was one day initially in 1971, everyone's supposed to, or maybe it's three days, right? Uh, everyone, everyone who sees killer whales is supposed to you know, report their numbers, report their location, send them into him. And this is just an attempt to get a rough idea. He does this three years in a row and then ultimately does an even more extensive one in 1974. And one of the things he reveals is that, uh, uh, this, that the census reveals is that there's far fewer orcas in on the whole west coast but certainly in bc and western washington waters than anyone imagined and and so this has big implications for the future of live capture and and conservation policy for orcas so that's one piece of the story that he this is his sort of entry into this but what he's really known for now and rightfully uh is for developing uh, an extraordinarily creative system of photo identification for for orcas that that's now not not only used to identify and know all the killer whales in the Pacific Northwest but this has then be, uh become a system for identifying killer whales around the region and it's influenced uh that photo identification of other cetaceans around the world oh it's what we now do with every whale because of big yes yeah. So a critical step in this that everyone forgets when, when they tell this story is that this, you know, a key piece of the a key link in this chain of him developing this system actually occurred in relation to captivity. And what he needed to do, what he believed he needed to do was to prove that the marks on killer whales, their fins in particular, would remain largely permanent or recognizable throughout their lifetime. And this is something that, that he had theorized, but other scientists were skeptical of. So in, in, in the summer of 1973, uh, uh, a large male who's caught in one of my father's catches that they nickname Taku, he's now known, he's, he's deceased, he died in about 2001 or two, uh, known by his, uh, by his alphanumeric K1. He is uh, uh, held for a period of, of months 
uh, while Big prepares some experiments to, to run on him. One is they're going to try a radio telemetry tag. They're going to see if they can mount a radio transmitter on, on Taku um, that will temporarily be on him and then will we'll release and see if you can track his movements. The other thing that is very controversial and upsetting to hear, for people to hear about now, but was transformational for this photographic system, photo identification system, is that Big decided to make marks in Taku's fin. And so right before he's released, a uh, local veterinarian under, under Big's direction makes two large incisions, two large cuts, notches, out of Taku's fin. This, uh, when I interviewed my dad, who was watching this close up, was the most upsetting thing moment to him, and and you know just for him, visually and emotionally watching, uh, the blood spurt out of. So he was there. Yeah, he was there watching. Yeah, he was watching the blood spurt out of Taku's fin, um, and you know, in my dad's words, at least, looking like the blood just filled up the water around around Taku. Um, they wait until the 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 wounds heal up. Um, a bit, and then they, they mount the, the radio transmitter and they release Taku. Uh, now, in hindsight, and I imagine lots of your listeners are going to hear this story and you're going to think, that is horrific. Anybody who did that should be put in jail. Um, but bear in mind, this is Michael Big, the most celebrated killer whale researcher in history. And his theory proves correct. He He's able to show in photographs in 1974, 1975, 1976, they're able to track Taku, identify him by these notches, show that the notches have changed a little bit in the sense that they've healed, but they've remained remarkably you know, similar to when they were cut, and they remained that way until his death, you know, almost 30 years later. And Big and his research assistant, Graham Ellis, take these photos to other researchers, including a really important orca symposium that's held at the University of Washington in, in uh, 1976, and they're able to make the case to skeptical U.S. researchers, to, to totally skeptical SeaWorld uh, uh, scientists, veterinarians, that you can find a way to identify and track these animals by their marks on their fins and by what becomes known as their saddle patches without having to capture them and mark them. That, that, that you can actually develop a system of reading their bodies on their own terms rather than having to, to, to alter them. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive because Big had indeed done that. He had altered Taku's body, but he did that to make a point that, that if you see animals that have, you know, scars on their fins, boat, you know, from boat strikes, from, from, you know, the scars that we accumulate in life, that they will retain these and these will be recognizable. And this becomes, uh, first of all, it, it's a critical moment, ironically, of decoupling Killer whale science from killer whale capture because he he begins to develop a system to read them read read wild whales bodies without having to capture them by using these scars and by using these marks um, because previously and I should have said this previously previously it was assumed the system you'd have to use is is some kind of branding they'd experimented with dry ice branding of captured whales they had thought about using lasers to mark their bodies uh, and big is making the case that you can do this naturally and non invasively even though he had been invasive in his, in his use of Taku's body. This goes on to become the foundation of a total transformation in, in killer whale science and also a total transformation in, in the public's 
perception of them. It's not, I mean, this it started with captivity, but the moment you start having the capacity to identify individual whales by this system, then it's not just scientists, but the public that can start identifying them and knowing them by their markings. And this is, you know, a key step in what becomes not just the the alphanumeric coding of them by their pods and their numbers, but also the naming of them that we've seen that the Whale Museum and others start. Her. Fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. Can you walk us through him numbering those orcas? Yeah, I mean, it was at first a really just a, a happenstance uh, um system that they come upon you know they stay they as they start figuring out that there are these groupings and remember that they're also studying the northern residents as well right yeah. and trying to figure them but they start studying these groupings and they just they start off with what they hope will be a, a an easy code um and they're initially assuming that that these are um breeding uh, uh or breeding breeding gatherings that they're seeing and, and so they're assuming that there's some sort of a lead male a lead bull um that's that has you know mates and offspring around it and then you have a dispersal after that of course we know that's that's not the way it works and so initially they were naming these from uh from what they thought were dominant males it's one of the reasons why you know we think maybe why k1 gets that number um and it's really you know, through the study of this and the realization that these are permanent, not only are these these permanent uh, uh, social groupings they're seeing, but they're they're noticing uh, a structuring around what seems like dominant females that's nonsensical or counterintuitive to biologists. You don't see this kind of social organization hardly anywhere, um, particularly with the permanent association of of uh, of mothers with with adult males right that's that's really unique but it's it's really in the 1980s that they early 1980s that they they've not just figured out the numbering of these pods you know each each pod member getting a jk or l in the case of the residents but also numerical uh, uh identifications but it's 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 in the early 80s that they all, all of a sudden come to this epiphany that these are matriarchal Societies and these are these are pods actually structured by matrix lines, um, which is another really extraordinary contribution that that Big makes. And it all I want to emphasize it all starts with the ability to identify and track individual whales. Or you, if you can't identify and track individual whales, you can't figure out their associations. Well, this is where I'd like to go back to context, which, despite what my book is about, I rarely get to do for for this. And where we were at with orcas prior to 1964, what we were doing with orcas, pri what we were doing with orcas on the West Coast. Yeah. So can you? Yeah. Yeah. Tell I mean, some this, of those stories so I don't have to. I, yeah, that's great. I mean, I I refer to this sometimes as as the unthinkable history of the Pacific Northwest, meaning. Uh, when I tell my students this now, anyone really, you know, younger than 50 now, when you, when you talk about this history, a lot of them look at you like you're crazy. This can't be true. It's one of the reasons why I joked about calling it crazy shit that really happened. Because uh, our relationship with, with marine life and certainly with this apex predator was so different, so unimaginably different up until the mid-60s that, that, you know, you really have to step back you know, before this transformation to understand it in its, as you said, in its context. So just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, 
first of all, you know, probably the fundamental dynamic of the first half of the 20th century in the Northwest was, was the growing human violence toward, toward orcas. I mean, the, the fact that, that fishermen, both, both settler as well as indigenous, uh, engaged in violence toward, toward, toward killer whales, uh, uh, often just, you know, the, the happenstance of, of net entanglements, but often, you know, shooting them. And this happened on both sides of the border. A very regular occurrence, and in fact, many of the of the orcas taken into captivity in the '60s and early '70s had old bullet wounds from from these encounters. Uh, but the other piece of it that I always like to point out is is the limitation of science in in this region. I mean, the 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 focus of scientific research towards cetaceans up until the 1960s was commercially commercial in nature. So it was regulation of, of whaling, which went on in BC until 67, went on in, the, in, in California until 72. So scientists are working with whaling companies. Um, orcas were not considered a commercial species, so they're not the focus of those scientists. But the only research on the West Coast that's done on, on orcas uh, really until captivity, until 64, 65, is the what you call in your book the slice and dice research. You know, it's the it's the the uh, in in the the lab in Seattle, the main you know was called the Marine Mammal Biological Laboratory. It's now the National Marine Mammal Laboratory, main main marine mammal laboratory in North America. They had a standing directive to all their researchers that if you come across killer whales on your research in your research, make every effort to to kill them and study their stomach contents. This is a standing instruction and. And uh, uh, from 1960 to 1967, uh, that lab and its researchers kill at least 10 that we know of, you know, maybe more, but at least 10 that we know of that they're able to recover and dissect and examine. And they're examining them just to see if they're eating... Things that we want to eat. Absolutely. Salmon, but mostly northern fur seals, which, of course, it's important to note the U.S. government was running a commercial harvest of northern fur seals, you know, up until the 70s. So that's our interaction with killer whales is there a vermin species they're a potentially dangerous one uh, that's gonna, that's taking away resources that we need and, and you know the most infamous moment uh, in BC history for that is of course the, the the machine gun that's mounted just north of Campbell River you can talk about this oh no because your book found stuff that I hadn't found that I would have loved when you went into Campbell River you had the whole like you you found the arguments over that and some of the papers and that because believe me, if I'd had, yeah. if, I, if I'd known the, the amount of stuff you had on Camel River, it would be in the book. Yeah. Uh, but Crazy stuff. I mean, crazy stuff. Please explain how crazy, because uh, my book says they put up a machine gun in Campbell River to take out the whales. And I knew that they talked about bombs and that, they, that the theory was that the orcas would eat each other yeah. because they were so bloodthirsty. But you had more than that. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a crazy story and uh it shows just i mean this is just a couple years before moby doll and and namu and and it all starts with the complaints of american tourists and i'm a transplant american so i'm not going to put all this blame on americans you know canadians made this decision but american tourists were coming to campbell river to catch spring salmon chinook salmon start complaining that there's too many blackfish in the area and they're worried and they're and they're annoyed that that these uh that the you know that that orcas are going to eat their prize, take their prize, and maybe knock over a boat. And so, Fisheries Canada, at the behest of these fishing lodges, you know, uh, that these which which relied on tourist 
uh, money, start thinking about, well, what do we do about this? And there's never a question of, should we do something about this? You know, it should, should we just let the, you know, the orcas eat their, eat their Chinook? There's a question of, well, this is obviously a dangerous pest. We've got to get rid of it. Remember, this isn't the era of, you know, culling and killing cougars and bears and, and, and wolves, you know, on land. So this is in that context, let's get rid of these pesky, dangerous predators. You just roll over, show your belly every time somebody snarls. Only when I've created a murder bot. We didn't. We weren't even close. Were we close to an interface? Well, you did something right. And you did it right here. And they hold a series of town hall meetings with local stakeholders, fishermen and, and, and the lodge owners and, and fisheries scientists and uh, marine, marine mammologists at the, in Nanaimo. And they throw around all kinds of ideas. I mean, they talk about, uh, they, they do talk about bombing from, from, from planes. They decide, of course, that's too dangerous for people on the ground. Um, there's serious discussion of either ground mounted or, or, or actually fired from boats, mortar shells. Yes, it was the mortar shells that you had that I hadn't seen before. And, and uh, you know, clearer heads prevailed and decided, well, you know, if you're firing mortars from a boat, many things can go wrong, including, you know, uh, inac- inaccurate fire that could strike people. Uh, all, you know, all kinds of ideas they come up with. Um, and eventually they decide that the sanest, the least dangerous... Uh, is is this machine gun that they that you know this World War II era machine gun that they get from a squamalt? Uh, bring you know ammunition. They set it up. I had the amazing fortune of meeting and interviewing uh, one of the men who helped transport the gun and then got to help test fire it. You know who still lives in Campbell River, uh, and you know his stories. I mean they're they're just from a different era in the sense that you know they're he. He, he's describing these these fishery scientists and these you know the these soldiers who are there and their one job is to protect Campbell River from invading blackfish right and and you know they're conducting uh, uh, target practice and what did they use for target practice other other wildlife you know and so cormorants are floating by on logs and they're firing at the cormorants you know and um, it gives you a sense of the different era and here's the funny part. The, the gun is never actually fired at, at killer whales. Finding out why was, it, was, it, was, it, it was an interesting mystery. And I don't think I entirely solved it, but I had my theories. And, and you know, one of them is there was a very real concern that it was, the errant fire could start a fire. Yeah, I've and, heard the, and, I've, yeah, I'd heard the forest fire theory. Yeah. Uh, if you look at where the gun was, I, I don't think that's actually valid because it was actually mounted on the southern end of an island and would be firing at the water. So, so, so it's it, that's probably not the reason it wasn't fired. The the funny part is that that buried in one of the science, one of the one of the reports by uh, 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 Gordon Pike, who who uh, was was the marine mammologist in Nanaimo, uh, who actually had some thoughtful things to say. We shouldn't we shouldn't lampoon him too much. I mean, at one point in his reports, he says, you know. I'm not sure it's that good of an idea to expunge this species from BC waters. We don't know what could happen. You know, the, the seal population could boom. You know, he, you know, he actually is actually considering some ecological questions. But he also says, you know, and I, can't, it's, I don't think this is tongue in cheek, but I think it's probably the reason it wasn't fired. Is He says, you know, um, it may seem to make sense to us to, to, to kill some of these whales to try to chase them off to comfort the tourists. But what happens if you know, dead, bloated, stinking orca carpet carcasses start washing up on the beach in, in Campbell River. Isn't this going to chase away the tourists as well? And of course, my joke I have in the book is, you know, perhaps loud 
errant 50 caliber machine gun fire might chase away the tourists as well. Right. But, but uh, it shows you where they were at in thinking about these animals entirely in the context of an extractive economy. Right. I mean, salmon are here for us. You know, the resources are here for us. Any animals that don't bring resources to us are, are not, have no inherent value. And, and, and if you think about that as in 1961, you know, it's an astonishing transformation that's happening by 64, 65. Now, I'd heard that, the, that no orcas came by. So did orcas come by? It's hard to tell. I mean, it's, okay. I, mean, I, mean I, I find it hard to believe that, that at no point in that summer did any orcas come near Seymour Narrows and Campbell River. I mean, I mean people have you know, attributed sort of a, a, a special sense, a, cogn- uh, you know, a, a, a precognition almost to orcas in, in situations like that. And maybe they didn't come because they knew the machine gun was there. I think it's probably very likely that there were orcas in the vicinity. Um, but... I think there, I think there was misgivings ultimately about about that that Pike expressed, right? That well, what happens if if we actually fire on them, right? And um, so yeah, I mean, it's but it, but it is possible, yeah. Well, it's like I mean, I frequently have to follow up explaining that with we had just wiped out the basking sharks yeah. just a few years earlier, like when I when I end up telling the story of Moby Doll and Murray Newman, and him going, I wanted an orca before we got rid of them all. And trying, and people are like, what do you mean before we get rid of them all? We got rid of all the basking sharks just a few years earlier, and the Coast Guard did it with spikes on their boats. And people just look at me like I'm making that up. In terms of all the history stuff where I get, that is the winner where I get like, no, we didn't. Well, and yeah, almost incredulous really. that there had been a basking shark population. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. Who cares if there's a few little details you'd rather not remember? Part yeah. of that is, I mean, we have, we have very generational memories about our, about our local ecologies, right? I mean, we call it, they call it shifting baselines, you know, in, in fisheries management. And, and people here, especially those that have moved to the region, um, imagine they're moving to this pristine, rich coast, this untouched wilderness, right? And the fact that they're seeing a truncated shadow of an ecosystem that once was is hard for them to imagine. It's hard for people to imagine that this was a place with basking sharks, you know, with, with, with humpback whales all over, you know, and right humpback whales right in, right in Vancouver Harbor. Right. And, um, with so many salmon that you could walk across. Absolutely. And, and, and the salmon runs, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to even wrap your mind around how much that has been destroyed. Uh, so in the context of the time, I mean, it it was entirely conceivable that killer whales could be wiped out. I mean, remember that's when 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 Newman is collecting those specimens, he they have a difficult time finding a basking shark to use as a specimen, and and there's certainly a fear that that killer whales could go the same way. And in fact, that that policy, blackfish control policy in in Campbell River. I mean, there are moments when when some of the actors refer to the eradication of basking sharks as you know a precedent for this, and so it certainly was a possibility that 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 killer whales could have gone the way of basking sharks. Which remember that that eradication happens in the 1940s and 1950s. They have never come back without protest. This this is the other part that I have to explain to people is great great fanfare. Yes, is wasn't this cool? Isn't it great? It was gleefully reported in the newspapers as a really fun little story. I, I used to work for newspapers and you'd call funny little stories like that brights. They were the fun, you know, 
cute stories. And this was Baskin Sharks reported as a cute story. Hunting the or- hunting Moby Doll was reported as a cute story. Look, the Vancouver Aquarium is going to get no- a killer whale. It's a novelty. How cool is that? It's a novelty. Yeah. It's not about winning. It's about fun. What's that? Fun is when you... Fun is... It's like... It's kind of... Giant task going back to interviewing your dad because in dealing with family and stuff like this, I did a movie called The Green Chain uh, about Forrest about 10 years after the movie is released. My dad's sitting at the dinner table one day going, you know, I worked at Green Chain once. Like, what? (laughs) I I, I did promotion for this movie for five years. I would have dedicated the movie to you, Dad. I would have just gone, for my dad, who worked on the Green Chain. That's funny. He he told me he'd done different resource jobs or whatever. But suddenly, yeah, when I was was out here, I'm like, no. No. So what was it like interviewing your dad? Yeah, I mean... I think my experience with my dad's probably not unlike that of many sons with their fathers, meaning you think you know them and you think you know their story, but you know, as you get into these layers, you realize how much you haven't heard. Um, and my dad, while he's a great storyteller, he doesn't open up about his emotions much at all. And so there were many layers of getting into this often drinking was required to get, yeah. to, to get the sort of, to, to get to the next emotional level. Um, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was the most difficult part of the story for me emotionally, I think, because I had to reckon with, you know, his pain, his guilt, my family's responsibility for what is now a Northwest tragedy, you know, and, and not my family's sole responsibility, but my, my family's role in yeah. this. Um, and, uh, maybe we could come back to that because I, I actually, like, I try to connect my, a sense of family responsibility to a shared regional responsibility. That's really important to me. But, um, but it was, um, I'll never do anything. I don't think probably as meaningful and as personal again in my writing, because, you know, this is, uh, you know, my father loomed larger than life when I was growing up. He was a really extraordinary personality. He was the kind of guy that, um, Everyone, I grew up on Bainbridge Island mostly in, in Puget Sound, and, and, you know, everyone on the island knew if there was ever an injured animal, our house is the place you take that injured animal, right? And so I grew up with birds and squirrels and raccoons and owls in the Christmas tree, all in various states of convalescence, you know, healing from injuries. This is who my dad was. I just knew he was the kind of person that that would always stop whatever he was doing to help an animal. And, and so when I was a kid, I always viewed this story largely through that optic that this was his, one of his extraordinary stories about animals. Um, and it was only really as I got older and, and started and, and, and the regional embrace of killer whales grew right in the eighties and then especially the nineties with whale watching and such that I started to watch him really wrestle with this sense of guilt. And, um, and so I had, had never really talked to him about these layers of guilt he carried until I got into the story. I mean, I knew they were there, yeah. um, but but I, I've been um, I've I've had many moments of being surprised. First of all, at the at the sort of depth and accuracy of his recall compared to lining up with documents. Yeah, um, and he had some amazing stories to tell. But but also 
um, you know, the emotional response he's had to a lot of this stuff um, has been, I don't know, humbling. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think that it would mean that much to him. Um, and so that's been, that's been pretty powerful. Um, it was an, ex- it was extraordinary to have him as a source. It was extraordinary to have him as a, as a contact I could refer to because it got me lots of interviews that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Um, a lot of people that knew me as a little boy that hadn't seen me in 30 for the 35 years that sat down and talked to me about these extraordinary times in their lives. Um, so I me, mean, he made this project possible. I mean, he, I mean, for all the research I did in government archives and newspapers and chasing down people, he and Ted Griffin, their willingness to sort of share their materials, share their lives and memories um, in, in lots of ways, create the emotional and psychological arc of the book. Well, you got to talk to people that I couldn't get near, and one of those is Griffin. Yeah. And I'm assuming that Griff, that even if your dad didn't... anybody hardly, right? But, oh, exactly. <laughs> I, hey, I've, I've looked for interviews with him for the last two decades, and they're not there. And when you got Griffin, I thought, I wasn't sure if that was through your dad, or through the fact that you could say, my dad was one of the people who right. did this, which to me is going to open that door. It did. I mean, he, my dad met him a couple times but it, as a really young guy and Griffin didn't remember him so there was no I mean Griffin left the scene right as my dad entered the scene but going into Griffin he but knew going that into Griffin, you got to say yes look my dad was one of the guys I, I think what opened the door was um, the ability to say you know this is my father's part of the story I'm trying to make sense of it in its context and you know to Griffin's credit and it took me a while to convince him to open up to the degree he did and that I mean, took years, actually. Yeah. Um, but to Griffin's credit, you know, for whatever we think of him, and I have things I disagree with about him and the way he interprets it or decisions he made, but uh, all he ever asked of me was that I that I treat him in his context fairly, um, which you know is more than most people ask for for when it comes to treatment of their lives, and and so you know the fact that he sort of dropped all of his documents on me and said, go for it. Um, It's pretty extraordinary. I know you think people are going to be interested in this, but they're not. Let's share who (laughs) Ted Griffin is so we don't go too far down the rabbit hole without getting inside. Ted Griffin is one of the most controversial, fascinating characters in the history of the Northwest, I think. And, And he's largely forgotten now because of the big generational change and demographic change in in Puget Sound, but you know, in the 1960s and early 70s, he was a pretty iconic figure of the Seattle waterfront. He owned the Seattle Marine Aquarium, uh, opened it in, uh, during uh, the Seattle World's Fair in 1962, um, and became uh, a pretty, you know, a successful kind of impresario and and uh, uh, entrepreneur there. But you know, really at the heart of his driving force was was this fascination with animals and this desire, this obsession that grows, you know, in 63, 64 to, to connect with a killer whale, to swim with a killer whale, to befriend a killer whale. And he's running around Puget Sound or you know, boating around Puget Sound trying to all, find all way, different ways to, to, to catch this killer whale. In this sense, you know, the, the expedition to Vancouver Aquarium is sort of a one-off compared to Griffin's sort of obsessive, you know, attempts to catch a killer whale during all those years. One of the things, I think it was probably maddening to him that, that Murray Griffin in the in Vancouver Aquarium caught Moby Doll with one attempted kill shot, because here he is trying to catch them alive and, and failing, right? And um, he comes up to visit Moby Doll, unbeknownst to Newman, unbeknownst to anyone, 
uh, uh, goes and visits Moby Doll in his pen uh, in 64 and becomes even more obsessed with, with uh, uh, catching a whale, with, with having his own captive whale. And in 65, uh, summer of 65, two Canadian fishermen fishing off of Namu, BC, two Canadian fishermen from Steveston, uh, who were imbibing as fishermen tend to do sometimes, as I know as a former fisherman, drinking a little bit, and they fell asleep in their bunks with their nets out. And lo and behold, captured two blackfish, two orcas against a reef right off of Namu, BC. One of them, a calf, eventually escapes, but Griffin goes on to uh, buy the larger male, uh, who he names Namu, um, buys him with a rucksack full of, you know, one and five and ten dollar bills that he that he rounds up from the merchants on the Seattle waterfront, buys himself a whale, first purchase of a killer whale in human history, uh, spends three days building a makeshift floating pen, which is itself sort of extraordinary <laughs> uh, feat, and tows this whale back hundreds of miles uh, to Seattle through the inside passage, you know, through, through uh, you know, past all these towns and off of Vancouver Island that are coming out to, you know, see this famous whale, Namu. Uh, and Namu is eventually displayed on the Seattle waterfront for a year, becomes a really iconic, you know, uh, killer whale. And it's, it's in that time period that Griffin becomes the first person that we know of, you know, it could have happened in human history, but the first documented person that we know of to swim with a killer whale. Uh, and this is a, revelation to people that, that a human being could go swimming with a killer whale. You know, even for as important as Moby Doll had been, the impact of, you know, perceptions on this whale and the first ability of scientists to study a whale live, none of them had jumped in, right? I mean, the only ones that had gone into the pen with, with Moby Doll had gone in basically in shark cages, right? Uh, Vince Penfold in particular. Griffin's the first one, and he's considered just insane at the time to jump in, and, and eventually he's performing with Namu. Well, I mean, they gave Moby a shot with a ten-foot pole. They were terrified. <laughs> that that was one. That was one of the life-changing moments for me when I fell in love with this story. Was the first time I interviewed Murray Newman, and he said, "If we'd captured a lion or a tiger or a bear, it would have killed us. We just kept assuming that at any moment this whale was going to regain its senses and try and kill us. And it hit me that all of these people were who terrified. I, were terrified." They're all scared to death. And by the way, that's an entirely rational response. The only, I mean, this is the funny thing is, you know, probably the only reason that orcas don't eat us, like lions, bears, and such do sometimes, their moms taught, taught them not to eat us. I mean, they're, they're very specialized predators. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they go after salmon, Chinook salmon, not just salmon, Chinook salmon here. They're, they're specializing in seals. They're specializing in stingrays. They've never learned culturally or evolutionarily to specialize in us. We're not a reliable food source. I mean, I don't mean to minimize our relationships we had with them, but but how could they possibly know that it wasn't a general predator that would attack them, right? In that sense, Griffin is the least rational of all these actors because he's jumping in with a lion, essentially. Yes. He's jumping in with an apex predator saying, I'm sure it won't eat me. He told me about being told by every scientist he respected that they would kill him. And of course, I mean, and Newman's specialty, which I didn't know at the time, was freaking trout. Yes. You know, Newman's thesis was trout. He was obsessed with trout. So everybody he'd talked to about whales said, the whales will kill you. Yes. So I'm thinking the guy who knows trout is going to defer to the head of marine mammal biology 
at the Museum of Natural History in England. That was who's saying that whales was will the, kill you. That was the dominant knowledge at the time. The U.S. Navy diving manual says, "Get out of the water when 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 killer whales appear. They will attack people at a moment's notice." So that that was the common knowledge. In that sense, you know, Griffin, the entrepreneur, not scientifically trained, but but with a, almost a messianic belief in his ability to connect to animals is sort of his defining characteristic still to this day. Uh, it seems, I mean, it's it's beyond quirky, but it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal to watch. He just believed believed that he could be the killer whale whisperer, and and uh, and formed this relationship with Namu. Now, you know, Namu goes on to help inspire the name Shamu. You know, when Griffin catches and sells his first killer whale, uh, you know, in some ways it's a it's the it's the seeds of a darker history that that you know that bring a lot of the damage to the Southern residents, certainly through captivity. But for Griffin, for that sort of magical year, that's, that's a, that's sort of the moment in his life that he most treasures, I think that year. And when Namu dies of pollution in, in, in Elliott Bay off Seattle, uh, he's never the same person again. Come all you good people and hear my story concerning Namu killer whale I'll tell you some things that are bloody and gory and thereby hangs a tale can you talk about the day Namu arrived because that party sounded like something surreal and I've just heard the Namu song for the first time yeah, yeah. I like the, the original Namu song I, I'd the, heard not the movie song but the, the movie song is fine the Namu rock song's hilarious yeah it's uh Namu was I mean it's is mostly a northwest thing. I mean he's a he's a he captures headlines around the world. Yes. But it becomes a cultural phenomenon in Puget Sound. You've got dances called the Namu, the Finn, the Blow. Uh you've you've got Namu this Namu song when he arrives uh at the waterfront um, and this is partly because of the, the the booster nature of a lot of those merchants, including especially Ivor Hagland, who arranged a lot of this. I mean, they've got a Dixieland band there. They've got the acting mayor, and they've got the, the you know the acting governor is on the waterfront to welcome Namu and Griffin, present them with a key to the city. It's a phenomenon. There are thousands of people there, overwhelming. And and um, I mean, not to mention, I should I should mention, you know, before they arrive in Seattle, just as they're entering Puget Sound through Deception Pass. There are thousands of people lined up on the Deception Pass Bridge that causes an eight-hour traffic jam to see Namu just from the distance above, um, you know, carrying their kids. And that's a terrifying bridge. I've been up there. And, and de- ideas of child endangerment were entirely different. Than that. <laughs> like they're, they're dangling their kids over, you know, the side. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a moment that's really hard to recapture because, you know, the, you know, you got that, you got that. You got the acting governor and, and acting mayor saying, you know, Namu is going to help remake the waterfront of Seattle. You know, that Ted Griffin, this, you know, congratulations to this gallant man and this extraordinary achievement. Uh, it's hard to imagine him becoming a pariah, which, which he did just a few years later, right? Wow. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Saw a killer whale? Sure. Uh, any whale? Any whale. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw a whale was actually off my... Uh, the the actually no that's not true I, even before that I so I I, I grew up uh, as a really little boy on on fishing boats in in Alaska my my dad owned a abalone boat in southeast Alaska and so I my my first job when I was four and five was to measure abalone and sort of row around and 
fish for my family essentially. So I saw killer whales lots when I was when I was just really little, you know, killer whales and humpbacks and such. They didn't make for some reason as big of an impression on me as as when I would see them uh, from the from the ferry in Puget Sound, you know, when I was seven, eight, nine years old. Um, and then really the 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 profound moment for me, and I write about this at the end of the book, and I don't want to entirely spoil the end of the book because I want all your listeners to go run out and buy this book and find yes, out. Yes, please. <laughs> but but um, but I come back to the to this story at the very end about when my father takes me to to Petter Bay in 1983, which is exactly 10 years after he had conducted those captures, uh, and we're there, and um, whales visit us. Um, to the, you know, 10 years almost to the day since he conducted that capture, which is just surreal in hindsight. You know, as a kid, well, of course the whales would come here, you know. I'm here. here you're totally a narcissist as a kid, right? But but even as at that moment, um, that was really spectacular to me. I remember, uh, you know, they stayed in frolic for maybe 30 or 40 minutes you know, all around the boat. I remember as a little nine-year-old, I, was, I remember leaning on the gunnels and... And the the fin of a big male went by so so close that I had sort of the the approach avoidance of wanting to touch it, but being so afraid that it would grab me, right? But but it was that close, and and um, that moment, just as a kid, that sight was spectacular, um, and and it happened a day after we visited Sealand and watched a show. And so I had this fascinating sort of moment of boom, boom, you know, the captive whale show at Sealand, which were all Icelandic whales, we now know, I now know. And this visit probably from Southern residents in Petter Bay um, that was mind-blowing. Now, what that meant in the arc of my father's story and the Northwest story, I come back to at the end of the book, but I won't ruin that. But, but, um, but that moment was, you know, in hindsight, you know, my dad, after reading the book, called me one night in tears and he said uh did that really happen you remember that too because you know i did i make that up in my mind that that they came back when i was when we were visiting um because he you know memory is a funny thing where emotions are concerned right you know and he was asking me did i just wish they came back to visit us or did they really come well that was a that was a powerful moment i think wow oh my god I'm home. All the time. We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Uh, Rain, anything we're forgetting here? Anything you want us to throw in? What's something people can take away from the story of Ted Griffin that's encouraging or that... Yeah, I mean... If I have, I mean, I have a few objectives I wanted to, people to come out with. I want, I want people to understand that, you know, everyone lives in their own context and they, and they live their lives forward, right? Meaning we don't know how people are going to view our actions. Um, you know, I can imagine 50 years from now when we have an ocean without any fish, virtually, that, you know, people will look back on us and say, how could you have eaten salmon? so much salmon how could you have you know killed so many tuna for your sushi what were you thinking how could you do that um and so that's part of it is that, you know people you know people don't know 
in, in the past what we know now. That's part of it. Um, but even more than that, I wanted, uh, I wanted to tell an intergenerational story, meaning a, a story that, you know, people in their 70s and 80s and 90s and people in their 20s and 30s and 40s could read and connect with one another about this place that we live in and love, this landscape and this seascape and how we've come to love it and how we've come to think about it. And to some degree, even if we have disagreements with, you know, about interpretations of our history and actions of people that came before us to understand that we're part of a shared story. And that, you know, even some of the people that we want to villainize now, like Ted Griffin, and remember, you know, it took courage for Ted Griffin to sit down with me and tell his story. You know, this is a guy that for decades has, you know, dealt with death threats, uh, you know, harassment. And, you know, my promise to him was I would tell, tell his story and tell everybody's story in their context and, and, to, and to talk about the process by which we came to, you know, think about our marine environment differently here, to embrace this apex predator as an icon that we treasure. And hopefully something that people come out of the book with is a sense that you can't understand that story. You can't understand the process by which we got here loving orcas without figures like Griffin without figures like Mike Big, right? Um, I don't make that case for my father. He wasn't a, a super important figure in the story. My, 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 uh, my interaction with my father's story in the book is very different. It's, it's actually to help me, but my, my readers and my fellow Northwesterners on both sides of the border wrestle with implicitly, I think. You know, I don't try not to hit our readers over the head, but wrestle with a sense of shared responsibility. And I, my hope is, in my interviews and in my writing, if I can show that I wrestled with my family's impact and responsibility in this story in an honest way, if I reckon with it in an honest way, um, that we as Northwesterners can reckon with our shared responsibility um, and, our, and our moral obligation to this population. You know, yeah, my father was the last person to take, the, take them out take out Southern residents in a live capture. But the thing that people forget when they, when they focus on capture and captivity as if the main threat to Southern residents is that in the 25 years after capture stopped for the, for the Southern residents, they recovered. They recovered to nearly a hundred by the late 1990s or the mid to late 1990s. And then in the last 20 years, their numbers have crashed. Now, that's not to say that live capture didn't affect that bigger trend. It probably did. It probably had, has impacts for, for um, you know, genetic diversity, for their ability to respond to other strains in terms of reproductive capacity. But the truth of the matter is they recovered to almost 100. They're pre-capture totals, probably. And then in the last 20 years, they've been in free fall, and especially in the last few years. And that isn't about captivity. And that isn't about capture and it isn't about SeaWorld or the Miami Seaquarium as much as we may, may want to argue about those moral dilemmas of captivity. The reason is because of what we've done. The region that loves them is poisoning them and is starving them. And uh, I think that, you know, I'm hoping that if, through an example of wrestling with family responsibility that I can encourage a shared regional responsibility. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. 
Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please spread the word. Subscribe to our newsletter and our media magazine. Visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material and support our show on Patreon.com. And if you're on iTunes, please click on that groovy subscribe button so we can get more sponsors and you don't miss our upcoming Earth Day episode featuring Peter Volivan. If this show didn't work for you, I'm Oprah, and this was Oprah's Masterclass. And now, what else could we end this episode off with but the song celebrating Namu's arrival in Seattle? This is Namu by the Dorsals with the Gator Men. Aquila was born in the Arctic Sea Aquila well fed through history Well two fishermen called him fearlessly And Namu Well around Namu they built a pen They made it strong to hold him in Hooked up a tug and started to move When Namu well, he started to move about three knots at a time Yeah, Namu swam along, awaiting his prime One swinging wheel at the end of the line For ten days and nights, Namu was feeling fine Namu! Oh, yeah, Namu! Namu is home Always a killer You'll never more roam Yeah, but don't take a chance You can't mess around with Namu Started to move About three knots at a time Yeah, Namu swam alone Awaiting his prime One swing and wheel At the end of the line For ten days and nights Namu was feeling fine Namu Namu